Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football, recruiting, and more for InsideIndySports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside Indy Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. My Dead Soxy dress socks made the trip to Chapel Hill with me last weekend. Usually, when I get home from a game, first thing I want to do is take off my shoes so I can get comfortable. But this past Saturday, when I got back to my hotel room to finish my story, I just kept those socks out because they felt so good. Dead Soxy offers a premium product made from bamboo that gives you that luxury feel on your feet. And their patented technology has a no-slip guarantee that prevents the socks from rolling down your leg. Dead Soxy also does custom socks for organizations looking to create unique swag, perfect for corporate gifts around the holidays. So you can mix and match with designs and colors. And I know they have some colors coming that our listeners might be particularly interested in. Whether you're looking for traditional dress socks, no-shows, or casuals, DeadSoxy.com has the socks you need. And because Dead Soxy has partnered with us, you can use code LUCKY, L-U-C-K-Y, at checkout to get 25% off your order. That's code LUCKY at DeadSoxy.com. Support from sponsors like Dead Soxy gives us the ability to keep bringing you this podcast, so we'd appreciate if you'd show them that same kind of support. Notre Dame made its bye week a lot more tolerable with an impressive 45-32 win at North Carolina on Saturday. The bye week is almost all over already, I can't believe it. But it, it, it certainly can't end without an Inside Indy Sports podcast. With uh, Notre Dame's offensive line starting to play a little bit better, we wanted to take a closer look at the progression that it's made throughout the season. And to help us do that, we invited former Notre Dame offensive lineman Bob Morton back onto the podcast. Bob, thanks for joining us. Tyler, thanks so much for having me. It's good to, good to see you and Eric again. Bob, let's just start with the offensive line play and, and talk about how much the your concern level has maybe lessened with the way it's played in these last two games against Cal and North Carolina. Uh, yeah, I don't think that we can really overstate the level of concern that that I or anyone who's played the position of offensive line had after two weeks. You know, we saw a lot of things with Ohio State that we kind of attributed to maybe a really, really good defense where we couldn't move the ball, we couldn't run the ball, we couldn't protect the quarterback. And then when we saw against Marshall, uh, the same kind of things happening, the same free rushers coming through, the same lack of movement to run the ball, uh, there was a, a lot that that had me concerned. Would have kept me up at night, you know, if if it really uh, if it really mattered, like if I were a part of that team. Uh, the last two weeks, it's been nice to see a lot of those issues that we had. I think are are going to be looked at historically as growing pains for this offensive line. Um, you know, we're not seeing a lot of the same mistakes happening again and again and again. And so adjustments are being made individually. It looks like adjustments have been made uh, in terms of how the, the scheme is picking up some of those blitzes and those uh, those free rushers. And, and overall, I think the offensive line really uh, was a leading factor in this offense, specifically last week against North Carolina, but it really did start to turn uh, at some points against Cal. And I just, I don't, maybe it's the offensive lineman in me, but I think it's important that you have an offensive line that wants to be the primary focus of an offense, right? You want to make sure that there is strength of that unit. And I think you're going to see that happen more and more as this offense progresses through the season. Well, yeah, and they have two uh, two captains on that offensive line. So, 
they're they're definitely looking for their leadership from it um as you you know i think one of the questions we get is wow north carolina was such a bad defense is the are we seeing is some of this a mirage or do we feel like the improvement we saw is sustainable and we can kind of extrapolate that out you know over the next few weeks yeah i, I mean i think that it's interesting, right? Statistically speaking, North Carolina's defense we knew was not very good going in. And yet, um, after that first series where the offense went three and out, I think all of us puckered up a little bit that maybe the <laughs> mirage was their ranking before the game and it was going to be another <laughs> long one. But, I mean, listen, I mean, they've got athletes, right? They, they've got a whole lot of stars in the athletes they've recruited, and that team has been put together. And in the same way that – there were growing pains for an offense that looked really inept early on for Notre Dame, for us. You know, I think that that defense will start to put some things together to really let their athletes run around and make plays. Um, and so I think it's kind of a story of momentum. I, I think what I saw was a North Carolina team that tried to capitalize on things that hurt Notre Dame the first few games, but Notre Dame had an answer for and that's the kind of progress that I think is important because every single team we face from here on out is going to have film from Ohio State and Marshall and even in Cal, things that gave us a hard time, and right. they're going to try and capitalize on that. We need to make sure we have answers for those against units that are more cohesive and, and may, maybe better working than North Carolina's is right now. Bob, when, when you're watching the offensive line, what – why do you think the unit started off so poorly? And then what are what are the things that you're identifying as, okay, this is a sign of improvement? Yeah, so, you know, I think that um, I want to make sure that I make it really clear. Like, I'm not in that, that Notre Dame locker room. I'm not in the offensive line team room watching film. Um, you know, so my perception is really just kind of looking at the personnel on the field. And with my basic understanding of knowing – Either the protection was supposed to block these guys or those guys. And so knowing the breakdown was kind of either one guy or another, I think ultimately there's been a lot of transition on this team, on this offense and on this offensive line. I love the fact that we knew who the coach was going to be. And he came from the staff. I love the fact that we knew who the offensive coordinator was. I love the fact that we knew who Harry was, you know, from before, but anytime you're, you're transitioning from one O-line coach to the next, there is sometimes a change in terminology, a change of focus, uh, a change on, on what it is each individual is doing that takes some time to really kind of lock in. And so, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but one, maybe two players on this offensive line have extensive experience which, with Coach Heastan before he came back. And so everybody's really trying to learn on the fly to be one of the best offensive line in the country in terms of expectations while still just trying to maybe figure out a new position or figure out how to work with, you know, a guard or tackle next to them that they've never done before. There's a certain level of trust that every lineman has with one another, but when it comes to game time, knowing that the person next to you is going to be there in your back pocket whenever you let a rusher go outside of you because you see something in the blitz package, like, learning that trust it, it can take years and so we're asking these guys to do that over months or even weeks fact is i saw some of that i saw rushers go outside of josh lug and get picked up 
uh, by Blake, you know, at the right tackle. I saw, you know, Zeke pass somebody on to, to Jarrett at, at left guard. And when you see those passing offs happen, that's when you see there's a cohesion of the offensive line that that you can start to trust. And that's just pass pro. I, I don't think there's a better litmus test for if they're working together than pass protection. But the fact that we're running for as many yards as we did with as many backs getting touches shows that in terms of being aggressive and running the ball, we're starting to answer some things as well. So um, as, as we've gone through the season, there are people that will contact me either in the podcast questions or the chats, but their recommendations are off with their heads. Let's get rid of this guy on the offensive line. Let's get rid of this guy. Um, I, I do think that the one change that I wondered about once they got to the bye week was if moving Jarrett Patterson back to center made sense. And I thought if you're going to do it, it would seem like the bye week's the time to do that. So first of all, is my thinking correct about the bye week being the best time to make a change? And secondly, why could a change be counterproductive to what what you might be trying to do in terms of cohesion? Yeah, you know, so I think that if you're gonna if you're gonna make a change, obviously having two weeks to to really get people you know back uh, into a place of comfort is important. Um, as much as it feels like a natural transition going from putting your left hand down at left guard to snapping a football, not in an emergency situation, but to, to be the center of the offensive line is a transition. It's a mentality check. It's a switch that uh, takes a little bit of time to get back into. So you want to have that extra week. So I think your, your thinking is right. If you're going to do it, you do it now. I think if I didn't see some of the signs during Cal and if I didn't see the, the kind of glaring signs of cohesion and improvement on the interior offensive line um, this past week at North Carolina, I, I, I would have been hard pressed to argue that maybe we should have made some shifting, even if it wasn't any individual's fault. If the unit's not working well together, we've got to try and figure out a way to get everybody on edge just a little bit. Like we've got to create that sense of urgency and, and nothing does that better than, you know, the possibility of a change in personnel. But that being said, I think that there's an awful lot that comes with a, a player's confidence when it comes to the offensive line in making a decision and sticking with it. I, I, I don't, people don't, don't realize when they're watching on camera or watching on the TV or even in the stadium, just how quick the decision of, punching a nose guard and and deciding whether or not to pick up the linebacker happens immediately and and it's lightning quick and if you second guess what you're doing you go from blocking one person to blocking nobody and and then your quarterback doesn't have a chance to get rid of the ball so if you have a player that's starting to make the right decisions taking two weeks and letting them know that that job is theirs and that they are allowed to make a mistake without looking over their shoulder allows them to play with that bit of confidence that I think uh, can really be the momentum builder for not only the team this season, but also that player's career. And so, um, you know, my hope is that the best games for the interior linemen this season and on are going to happen because of the, the show of confidence we're seeing in them over this bye week. Bob, I think a lot of attention has been paid to the interior offensive line because there were that was a lot a lot of people undergoing transitions were in that in those positions and not necessarily a lot of success was happening there. But 
Joe Alt at left tackle has seemed to really establish himself as just a sophomore. We know we saw him last year starting in the latter half of the year as a freshman. Can you speak to just how impressive he has been and how difficult it is to to play as well as he has as a sophomore in college? Yeah, I, I mean, I was fortunate to be able to see something like this myself when Ryan Harris, you know, stepped in first, second game of the season and, and kind of locked down you know, his tackle position for the next four years. I mean, sure made it easy for me as I was bouncing from center to guard to just know he was always going to be kind of the pillar on that side of the line. Um, I think the, the biggest thing is, about playing tackle is the, the speed at which you're making decisions, right? When, when you have just the athletes you have at defensive end and outside linebacker, um, you know, you, you can block one-on-one uh, let's assume because you're at Notre Dame that you can handle the one-on-one pass rush pretty well, which he's done exceptionally well. Um, then all of a sudden, a defensive coordinator is going to try and pick on you by showing you schemes and 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 the action at the offensive line with the the tackle and twists and things of that nature to try and get you second guessing yourself. What I love about watching Joe play is it just feels like he makes a decision, he sticks with it, and and even if I can't tell you it is, but even if he makes the second best decision and not the best decision, the second best decision at 100% is far better than any decision where you're wavering. And and he just has the ability to go out there and play. And and I love the aggressiveness. We haven't seen that kind of aggression from a tackle since McGlinchey. It's great to see him uh, get involved in the run game that way. And then pass protection wise, like I think that he's he's been somebody that, my eye doesn't even wander to when I'm watching pass protection. I just kind of assume that he's going to take care of that side of the line. I'm really watching the middle three to see how they're communicating. So I'll move off the offensive line a little bit to offensive coordinators. Now you, if I'm my memory serves me correct, your first one was Bill Diedrich. It was, yes. And then Charlie was basically the offensive coordinator. Agreed. Then, so... When you're playing, when you're a player, like, do you notice how good the offensive coordinator, like, do you have an opinion about them? And then I'm going to pull that out a little bit further and say, now, when you look at Tommy Reese, can you kind of compare what you see in him to what you saw in Bill Diedrich and Charlie Weiss? Sure, sure. I, um, I'll say this. So I think the, the best thing for my career and the worst thing for my football fandom was playing those first two years with Charlie Weiss. Um, you know, he said it and it kind of became a funny thing later <laughs> in his career, how he pr- provided a decided schematic, yeah, you know, it, it, offensive advantage. But I think he came into a team with a bunch of players who were you know, next level ready. And he gave us an offense that was unlike what we had seen previously. And um, we would go into a game with 15 to 18 plays and a plan to score on two of those plays. And more times than not, we did those things. Um, And so we were aggressive offensively. We were kind of, we weren't just doing the jabs to figure out what the defense was going to do. We were taking those jabs and setting things up for the third and fourth quarter, but we were also being aggressive and trying to knock them on their heels. Um, so when I watch other offensive coordinators, the one thing that can be hard for me is when I don't see like a continuity in play calling, or at least that's not apparent, 
right? And so, of course, I'm going to be a little bit of a fence rider here. I think it's appropriate for me to do so as a former player, employee of the university, big fan of the Fighting Irish. Um, I I don't know how like plans of continuity have to change. You know, like best laid plans are great until you get punched in the mouth. There have been some plays that we've called that have been spot on right play calls. They've just not been executed. And so there's a lot of things there. I feel like sometimes there's been the lack of the continuity that I experienced with Charlie Weiss. And we're trying to figure out what the defense might do. But I, it just doesn't see, seem like we have a progression from one play call leading to another play call leading to, you know, setting something up for the big score at the end of the game. Okay, the bottom line, we'll we'll take the heat off you with Tommy Reese, but did Charlie provide a decided schematic advantage? Was that a fact? Uh, I think uh, let's let's use the equation. Uh, Charlie Weiss plus I think it was twelve uh, future NFL players <laughs> definitely provided a decided offensive advantage for those first two years. All right, fair enough. Bob, with what Notre Dame did against North Carolina, did you get a better sense of what this offense wants to be? I I, I got a sense of what I hope it wants to be. <laughs> you know, listen, I mean, th this is the thing, right? Like, we went into the year knowing we had a depleted receiver room with really good talent of receivers who, as of yet, have not shown the ability to stack a guy and just get open you know, on a on a fly route, right? We've got some speed, we've got good hands, but we, we weren't seeing them get open without kind of systems. And so when you have receivers like that, that are very good receivers, but you can't just line up five wide, which was my fear when we started the game against North Carolina with no backs in the backfield. <laughs> you know, like my thing is like, Line up and run the ball, like line up and run the ball and let that set up everything else, because I just I let and that's how you let the game come to you. It gets your offensive line engaged. It can slow down the defensive line. You know, you have a quarterback who until last week hadn't thrown the ball, but 10 yards downfield. <laughs> and the best way to, everybody knows that you can throw short or you can throw long because that's what we see on video games. But when you want to see a good offense, it's the intermediate passing route. It is the 12 to 19 yards where you can see a team just dominate the, the opposing you know defense. And that's what opens up whenever you start running the ball. And so, listen, if all of a sudden you've got three running backs running for 200 yards, well, you don't need to go ahead and throw a trick in there. You just keep doing that and riding the momentum. Don't get cute, right? Like, just play the ugly game, shorten it, and win. Um, but if all of a sudden they make change to throw some more people in the box and you can't adjust for that in the running game, all of a sudden you've got these routes that will start coming open for your receivers, for your tight ends. And yeah, you may not throw 15 times in the first half, but when you need to throw 15 times in the second half, you've already spread the defense a little bit thin by threatening them in so many different levels. Awesome. So as you're watching Drew Pine, so you had Brady Quinn as your quarterback, I think all four playing years, and I, yep, maybe so Carlisle was the Carlisle Holiday, yeah. and Brady came in week two or three, I think it was. Yeah, so so you had the six three prototypical looking quarterback playing. They've got a guy that's listed at five eleven and a half, maybe five ten and a half. Sure, yeah, um, <laughs> but but I mean, football's changed a lot, so. As you look at Drew Pine, if you're the center or the guard, 
and you look back there and see Drew Pines, a quarterback, do you think this guy has the right stuff to to get us to be a top 25 team this year? Okay, so so let me answer that question two ways. One, absolutely. You okay. look at the confidence with which he played, well, a third down and seven, you know, getting flushed out of the pocket, runs for a first down. That right there tells me all that I need to know, right? Let's stop with the whole design quarterback runs. Let's just drop him back in the pocket and let him use his mobility if a play breaks down to go ahead and get a first down. Hello, Ian Book did that for, you know, four years. And so, so he has the stuff to, to move this offense forward and score points. What I want to say is you've got you've got two captains on that offensive line, right? So my my fifth year, we had Sam Young as my right tackle, future NFL player, and we had four guys who had multiple years starting in the offensive line. I don't care if you have Brady Quinn or you want to put insert, you know, joke about, you know, some other quarterback behind you. You could have put anybody behind us and we would have been wanting to go ahead and and score 40 on some folks. And so I, as an offensive lineman, want to say it doesn't matter who you put back there. We're going to go ahead and we're going to carry this load and we're going to let the offensive coordinator, we're going to let the head coach, we're going to let this team know that we go as far as this offensive line goes. And Mm. then I think when the pressure is off your quarterback, you're going to get to see at least an opportunity for Drew Pine to really shine in who and what he is as a player rather than having to be something that he was never designed to be eric were you i want you me? as my teammate <laughs> <laughs> i wasn't sure if you were encouraged by what you were saying or you were volunteering to to be the quarterback uh, i was quarterback. volunteering to be the lousy quarterback to see if he <laughs> changed his answer <laughs> um bob i'm curious obviously the start of the season didn't go as marcus freeman had hoped or planned what are your thoughts on how he sort of handled um maybe the negativity that comes with starting his career as a head coach at Notre Dame as as 0-3 and rebounded from there? I think it is fantastic that if he was knocked by anybody, it was for not saying enough rather than saying too much. I think that it's really, really easy when things go south to start talking and coming up with reasons, dare I say excuses, pointing fingers left and right. I think that we have a history, uh, even in previous regimes when things didn't go well, of finger pointing that landed on other coaches, that landed on players, that really served to distance the fan base from the team. I think having a coach say, you know, we don't we don't know what the answers are right now. We're gonna work to find them. We're gonna get better next week and we're going to keep improving, it's all that needs to be said. And while it's not been satisfying, listen, I I don't get the same emails that you guys do, but, <laughs> but I see a lot of what's written, and I hear in my position at Notre Dame a lot of people who are frustrated and upset. But don't give them more fuel for the fire. Just go to work. Say, say, say whatever's needed, Marshawn Lynch, so you don't get fined. And then, and then go to work the next day. And just like you're going to tell your players, let your play dictate, you know, uh, uh, your message. I think that's what Coach Freeman has really had to do. Like, go and do the work and let your work and the product speak for itself. And, and I got to be honest, I, I think having a soft-spoken and strong leader for the program, uh, while different, 
is a really nice and fresh change of pace. And and that's the kind of person that uh, that that I would always want to follow. Last one from me before we ask you what you're up to and hear about your kids. Um, when, you know, Charlie was a pretty celebrated coordinator in the NFL and, and then he comes to Notre Dame, but he's a first year head coach as a, as a player, did you, could you kind of note the first year growing pains with him at all? I mean, did he hide it pretty well or could you kind of see it? Were there, were there growing pains that first year? Cause pretty successful team. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's really interesting, right? Like, you know, Charlie didn't take over a 10 win team, right? right? You know, so he took over a team that whether we stunk or we just underperformed for two years, you know, five and seven and six and six, and all of a sudden we were nine and three that first year. Um, so I didn't, I don't think anybody sensed the growing pains. And I'll say for myself, I have a one-sided perspective, right? Like I was an offensive player for an offensively minded coach that we definitely did not underperform offensively for the two years that, that he and I worked together. And so um, I didn't see those, those growing pains. Um, I saw him uh, with the confidence of an offensive play caller do a really, really good job. Some of my defensive you know, counterparts might have seen uh, someone who, who wasn't as engaged in the defense and defensively we could have used a little bit more engagement. Um, but yeah, I think the growing pains for him happened when, you know, that, offense of 11 12 players rotated through and he had to go from play caller to player developer and i don't think that really happened in his tenure bob you've mentioned being an notre dame employee can you catch us up on what you're doing these days and then also what's going on with your family yeah yeah so director of regional development in the new england region i'm a frontline fundraiser for the university you know um uh, cost of higher education is higher than it's ever been notre dame's trying um, to, to slow the, the progress of cost of education and cost of attendance to our university. And so I go out and try and raise those scholarship dollars um, to, uh, to make it uh, more affordable for everyone and make it accessible for anybody um, who can get in. Notre Dame's one of like 60 institutions in the country that are need-blinded admission. We don't know how much a family makes when students are admitted, but we also cover full demonstrated financial need. And uh, to keep those two things um, as paramount as they are to our academic identity, it, it takes some work from our alumni base who have been fantastic to me. Uh, Family-wise, we're living up in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Uh, when COVID hit, we went and bought some land up here and our kids run around in cornfields and hay fields. And, uh, you know, we got to make sure that they don't come in with ticks and stuff like that. So <laughs> we, uh, we live out in the country and uh, we've got, you know, our older three, 10, seven, five, and two, 10 year olds playing uh, first year tackle football, seven year old daughter is uh, I think in like six or seven dance classes at this point. And our five-year-old son has got more foot speed than I ever did. And he's playing soccer. So we're definitely What's the two-year-old doing. Sure. What's the two-year-old up to? Two-year-old, uh, you know, really it's just a constant competition between him and me of whether or not the house is going to be on fire or extinguished. It's back and forth. He, you know, this, this place may not stand for a whole lot longer. Well, all right, Bob. those days. <laughs> Bob, we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us and uh, always appreciate you uh, sharing your insight with us. Awesome. Tyler, Eric, always good to see you guys. And, uh, you know, here's here's hoping for a really you know, positive, productive, growing season ahead.
As a reminder, the Inside Indy Sports podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, the maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. How do I know this? Even in the bye week, I found occasions to wear the no-show dress socks. I, I love the way they feel, even though the temps are getting a little bit cooler here in the Midwest. Very comfortable feel with that bamboo fabric. They look great. There's all kinds of cool designs. You can even order custom designs. Go to deadsoxy.com and check it out. They're great gifts. Uh, my sons have already helped themselves to part of my stash of the socks. They weren't gifts. They just took them because they <laughs> thought they looked cool and they loved them and they have not given them back. And I don't think I'll see them back at this point. Now we have a special for you. 25% off with code LUCKY. That's L-U-C-K-Y. So go to deadsoxy.com, type in the promo code LUCKY, and you get 25% off on your order. All right, now it's time for questions. Our question segment is powered by AcrePro Midwest Farm Group. When it comes to land sales, it pays to have experts in your corner. AcrePro Midwest Farm Group are your local farmland specialists. With decades of experience in Indiana agriculture, no one knows the market better. Whether you're doing a 1031 exchange or simply buying and selling farmland, your local AcrePro agent will walk the land with you and ensure the deal is done right. Visit AcrePro.com or call 765-587-3185 and talk to your local land expert today. Again, 765-587-3185. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at EHansonND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from at Soli Fenton. Through four weeks, which players on offense slash defense slash special teams have impressed you the most? Well, I'll give you two of each. And, I mean, these are like I, I'm saying who I think is the best, not who surprised me the most. So I'll say Michael Mayer and Joe Alt on offense. Howard Cross and Jack Kaiser, I think, have been the most consistent on defense. I'm I'm seeing Maris Leofal coming on, but he's not in my top two yet. And then on special teams, definitely John Sott, the punter. They're eighth in the country in net punting. Um, he's outstanding. And then Brandon Joseph, based on his, what I saw in the North Carolina game, I, I'm kind of grading him on a curve. Uh, he did a great job of fair catching before, but he looks like somebody that's going to get you 10 yards on a, on a punt return. So I'll, I'll vote for him. Yeah. We got a lot of similarities there. I would throw Audric Estime onto the offensive list. I've been pretty impressed with him. Certainly not the best first two weeks, but that I don't know that that was necessarily his fault. Um, Tariq Bracey on defense, I think it's been very impressive. Um, and Howard Cross until I think he played safety. <laughs> yeah. Until, until he played safety in the fourth quarter against North Carolina. And then uh, I would throw Zach Yoakum in, onto the special teams list. Uh, yeah. I mean, coming out of nowhere, no, I don't even know that anyone would have guessed that he was the backup kickoff person um, for a freshman walk-on to handle those duties and not really notice. Um, I, I think he had one fairly short kick at North Carolina that that I noticed. But other than that, he's been he's been North Carolina fair catch it, maybe? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure if that was the one they okay. fair caught or not. Um, all right, next question from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. We are now a third of the way through the season. What grade would you give Marcus Freeman, Al Golden, and Tommy Reese so far? 
what do each of them need to do in the next one uh, next third of the season to most improve their grade? Uh, I'm not I'm not great at grading here. I'll go a B with Marcus Freeman, a B for Al Golden, and a B minus for Tommy Reese. But he gets an A for the North Carolina game. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know they're still the 94th offense in the country, and they have to be better on third down and better in a lot of areas, but boy, they showed a lot of improvement. So he gets, um, you know, um, extra recess or whatever, um, (laughs) minus, um, what do they need to do? So with Marcus, I think kind of the trajectory that he's on, I mean, it seems like the decisions are better. The communication's better. There's less questions about why he didn't do this. Why didn't do that? I guess when you're winning, that's part of it, but also the operation seems smoother. Um, with Al Golden, they got to eliminate the big plays, keep the evolution of the linebackers going because I thought they did play much better in the North Carolina game against a really good offense. And then certainly, you know, they're kind of over, they're kind of doing a makeover of their defensive backfield. Those freshmen are getting more and more time. And I think keep investing in those guys for Tommy he's got to keep um you know developing drew pine i mean we need to see a drew pine that's going to play at the level he did at north carolina pretty consistently throughout the season if notre dame is going to have a pretty good record at the end of the year you know maintaining a balanced offense i think is good i'd like to see a few more misdirection plays um haven't seen a lot of those to this point so that would be my critique uh, but I think all three of them are at least moving in the right direction and won't get detention. All right. Um, I have lower grades than you for Marcus Freeman and Tommy Reese. I think my grade for Al Golden is a little bit higher. I had Freeman at a C plus golden with a B plus and Reese with a C um, for, for Freeman. I think he just needs to continue to push his coordinators to be better, keep the team in the right mindset and, um, sort of sharpen some of the game decisions that he he needs to weigh in on um, on a game to game basis. And for Al Golden, in terms of uh, just to, re- to remind people what we're talking about, uh, the second half of the question from Marie was that what do they need to do to improve their grade? The for Al Golden, I think just string some more solid games together. To me, the the most troublesome part about Notre Dame's defense has been that some of the crushing drives that it's given up and eliminating those would allow Golden to get an A and maybe eliminate safety blitzes. <laughs> could help that too. Right. Um, and then lastly, for for Tommy Reese, I would say just continue to develop an offense around Drew Pine. I think we there were some encouraging signs against North Carolina, regardless of the opponent, just some of the play calling and some of what I believe the identity of this offense could be. And uh, I think – sort of going along with that prove that the North Carolina game wasn't a fluke. So um, I think that there's still plenty of work ahead for Notre Dame's offense uh, to give uh, Tommy Reese a a higher grade there. Next question we have is from Zachariah Zachariah Williams at ZWill91. Can Drew Pine realistically take this team to at least an eight and four season, knowing that you play some pretty good defenses upcoming in BYU, Syracuse, and Clemson? 
I'd rather defer this question till after the BYU game, but since <laughs> I don't have that, well, I, I thought in my mind, if Notre Dame won uh, against North Carolina and BYU, neither game being at home, I would feel much better about like making a prediction of what their final record is. Since I don't have the BYU game to do that with, I mean, it, it, it's not just about Drew Pine. I mean, one of the reasons we had Bob Morton on today is, you know, to talk about the importance of the offensive line. So all these things work in concert, but is Drew Pine with that offensive line good enough to, what was the, what was the, can it realistically take this team to eight and four? I think it's realistic when I look, if, if they win the BYU game, I think then they go, then they're five and two going into Syracuse. Then you could say realistically splitting Syracuse and Clemson gets you to six and three. They beat Navy seven and three. They beat Boston college eight and three, and they're eight and three going into the USC game where I think that's kind of a toss up. Cause I'm not sure how good USC, I don't think they're the seventh best team in the country or whatever they're ranked right now. I mean, they were really lucky to beat Oregon state. Uh, they have to certainly get better. Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's that many really good teams in college football. So that I think you can make an argument for any number of teams to be fairly high, just because there's just not that many that are really, really, really good. Could you make that argument for Notre Dame? Would you have voted them in the top 25? No, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> what, you, what you've done matters. So um, losing to Marshall. Uh, there are prevents... people that voted North Carolina in the top 25 this week. Yeah. And that somebody in my chat wanted, wanted a piece of them. He, he <laughs> they must not who they were. <laughs> they must not have access to ABC. <laughs> That's the only thing that could, could make sense for that. But um, in terms of Drew Pine realistically taking this, team, I, I, I'd say it's somewhat realistic, but it's certainly not a given. Um, I just think that each game is critical for Notre Dame until it builds a better track record, in my opinion. So like you're saying, like I would much rather be able to tell you after the BYU game, um, so it's it's really hard to speak with any certainty. And even when you're just going through the, the games throughout the season, I don't know that you can assume a lot of victories based on what Notre Dame has looked like when it's played poorly. Uh, so as for like how it relates to how good those defenses are, I'm not, I mean, Cle I'm sure Clemson's defense is good. Uh, it certainly has the talent. I'm a little, little skeptical of what Syracuse's defense is. I don't know that the offenses it's played against are, are incredible. Um, BYU's defense statistically hasn't been very good um, or, or great. Uh, so I think any of those defenses can play well against Notre Dame, certainly. Um, just look at what Marshall was able to do and even Cal. Um, but I, I think Notre Dame's running game is starting to develop and could take some of that pressure off of Drew Pond. Clemson is – I watched the Wake Forest-Clemson game, and I was stunned. I don't know how much you guys got to see it. Of it. I didn't really see any of it. Okay. No. So, so Clemson, let me give you their numbers. They're eighth in the country in rush defense, 92nd in pass efficiency defense, and right. Wake Forest threw the ball over their heads consistently. And it was, I mean, they were absolutely in that game and probably should have won it. It was a double overtime loss. The thing is, can Drew Pine do that? You know, when you face a team that's that good against the run and that bad against the pass right can you can you take it out certainly sam hartman could but <clears throat> but i don't know if notre dame can do that and 
So that's how some of these teams are constructed. Um, you know, Syracuse is a little bit more even. Uh, Navy is also very good against the run and awful against the pass. Um, so it, it's it's going to be interesting to see. But yeah, that Clemson game, the matchup. I mean, if if it were Deshaun Kaiser, I'd say okay, and go <laughs> for let's go. But yeah, I need to see more of Drew Pine when he has to pass, whether he can do that. Yeah, I enjoyed. Uh, I think if someone on the entire lounge message board during the Clemson Wake Forest game is like, "Wow, these Wake Forest receivers are great. We should have. We should. We need to get guys like that." I was like, "Well, if if Notre Dame signed those guys as what they were as high school recruits, you wouldn't have been excited about them. They were making good plays, and they turned out to be pretty good players in that offense. But they weren't. Uh, I don't know that they were guys that uh, Notre Dame fans would have been writing home about if, if they signed with Notre Dame in the recruiting process. So it's funny how what actually happens in the game can certainly change the perspective of what schools are doing from a recruiting standpoint. Wake Forest runs that funky offense too, where yeah, they, the quarterback kind of holds the ball and then the running back doesn't hit the hole hard. He kind of shuffles his feet, looks for a crease and then goes, it's really interesting. I don't know if, if that's, I don't know. I don't know if that will work all season, but it was really interesting to see it work against Clemson. Yeah, I mean, they've been doing it for a while. And my understanding, and I, I, I've heard a little bit of this from Bruce Feldman on his podcast, and he actually wrote a story about he sort of implemented that that a, a similar scheme with uh, his son's flag football team. Um, okay. And Dave Clawson apparently is very protective of that scheme. I don't know that you don't really see anyone else doing it. I think it's sort of like one of one in college football. And I don't know that he goes around to a lot of clinics telling everyone the keys to making it work. Um, so, I, so it, it's sort of a, a, a unique offense in that, that, that you don't really see it anywhere else. And I don't, I don't know if it's how hard it would be to sort of install like something like that or teach like that, but um, or Wake Forest is certainly making it, it work for itself because it, um, I think Dave Clawson is a very, very impressive head coach. My um, seven-year-old grandson who plays flag football has his own strategy. He tackles people, then pulls the flag. <laughs> Sounds like a winning strategy to me. <laughs> All right, next question is from at Summer John. If Drew Pine was quarterback versus Ohio State, Andy wins 16-14. to 14. Discuss. P.S. Tongue planted firmly in cheek. Um. I don't okay, so am I supposed to make a joke about that? I, I understand <laughs> I, yeah. his his tongue's planted firmly in cheek. I, I I'll let you go first and then I'll follow. Well, you, my sure my answer it. my answer is simply I disagree. I don't I don't know what else to say. I don't think I don't think Notre Dame would have beat court, uh, Ohio State with Drew Pine at quarterback. Okay. Is Drew Pine playing Instead of C.J. Stroud, or is he playing instead of Tyler Buckner? <laughs> instead, instead of Tyler Buckner. Okay. Yeah, absolutely not. Notre Dame doesn't win that game. Now, if you put Drew Pine on Ohio State's mm -hmm. team against Tyler Buckner, <laughs> I like their chances because Drew Pine wasn't going to make that um, read that uh, when Jaden Mickey was in the game and, and the double safety blitz, I'm not sure that he would have been able to exploit that. I think maybe a couple of weeks from now he might be able to, but I don't think in the opener he was able to do that. So 
I've ruined that question. Let's go on to the next one. <laughs> yeah, you really turned that one on its head. Uh, next question is from at Charles W. Wolf. If Ty is Tyler Buckner in the booth with Coach Reese an unusual agreement? I could see it being be very beneficial, almost like an internship, but it's not something I remember seeing before. Well, some of it is because not all the offensive coordinators do go up in the booth, so you wouldn't see that. And then there haven't been a lot of number one quarterbacks that have been out for the year. Um, but I don't know that I've seen it with other teams. I, I thought that was interesting. I don't know that that's going to be a weekly thing. That's something we could certainly ask Tommy about when we have coordinator availability on Tuesday. Um, but I thought it was, I thought it was pretty interesting and it certainly keeps him engaged. Um, you know, there, there's probably some value to having Tyler on the field and being able to talk to Drew. Um, but maybe he could get on the phone and yell at him too. I don't know if he if he messes up. Yeah, it keeps him engaged. It also keeps him out of harm's way. I don't I don't I don't yeah. know what sort of re-injury could occur if he got barreled into on the sideline or something like that. But um I don't know that that's why they're doing it. You could certainly protect him on the sideline, but I think he would be at a worse vantage point. He wouldn't be able to see what was going on as well as he can from the press box with Tommy Reese. So um Getting a chance to hear what Tommy Reese is saying, what Tommy Reese is is, is processing. Um, I don't know what if they have him doing anything. If he's like charting something during the game, I, I'm not sure about that. He's um, getting Tommy coffee. <laughs> I have not seen him getting coffee. I have seen uh, him with the coaches going to the press box uh, in in multiple games now. Uh, but uh, I, I think it's interesting. I, I don't really. I, there was. It doesn't seem incredibly unusual, but I didn't also have any examples that came to mind. So I guess it, uh, maybe it is more unusual than I at first given thought to. But I think some of it has to do with what you were talking about, that not a lot, not all offensive coordinators in college football call plays from the from the press box. So you don't necessarily see that. Next question is from at uh, or from from the Insider Lounge, SJB75, jumping way ahead. Do you believe Notre Dame will have a portal graduate transfer at quarterback on the roster for the 2023 season? This is a weekly question for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and it's almost more of a, should they have it? And my consistent answer is they need to invest in looking into it and be ready for it, but not necessarily move on it. There's so many moving parts to this one. Does Buckner's, recovery go well or even ahead of schedule does he have a setback um remember um brendan clark had that knee surgery in december of 2020 and he was still laboring with that as the 2021 season started which really kind of took him out of being in the mix to be a backup quarterback um you have how is drew pine going to play you know malik zaire got hurt right about the same point in the season and Deshaun Kaiser was way better than anybody thought. <laughs> and so that changed the dynamic. You also have, how about Steve Angeli? Does he take meaningful snaps? Is he a factor? Does Notre Dame sign a 2023 quarterback? Does CJ Carr reclassify? I think all those things are in the mix. Before. Keep going, Eric, keep going. Well, seriously. <laughs> no, no, I know you, you're, to, you're totally right on. I, it's just when you think about all the different things that matter, it's hard to have an answer to this but, question, right? But you always have to be ready to move on it. So they ought to be, you know, monitoring the guys that may be 
jumping in the portal and they also need to be seeing are these people academic fits you know if they are freshmen or sophomores or they're graduate transfers they're going to be a lot easier to get through the process and get through it quickly if they're not it's going to be a difficult sell to the admissions office and and probably not a match so those are all things that they need to be thinking about but i, I wouldn't commit to it at this point yeah i was I find it funny especially during the season it seems kind of crazy like so uh, someone on our message board asked uh would, would Notre Dame be interested in Hank Bachmeyer, the Boise State quarterback who entered the transfer portal? And they asked, it was asked like two days after he did. I was like, I don't know. I'm, I can't imagine they're thinking about him right now. Um, and I don't know what their thoughts are on him as a quarterback. It's his career seems to have gone in the wrong direction. So uh, I, I think, uh, I think the one position you could say is wide receiver just because you need more numbers. Even right. if you sign four, Right, you're going to need a couple more bodies. Um, yeah, I think, I think the question, or the reason people believe this or think this or um, think Notre Dame needs a graduate transfer or a transfer quarterback of some kind, is twofold. One, they don't think Drew Pine is is the quarterback. Um, like they don't, they don't, they can't imagine him having success the rest of the season. And two, they are afraid that Notre Dame isn't going to sign a 2023 quarterback. Which those are fine fears. But the, the the results, I mean, they have to, those things have to play out first before you sort of make that decision on what you're going to do. Um, so I, I would guess, if I had to guess right now, I would say no, unless Notre Dame doesn't get a 2023 quarterback recruit. That's sort of my perspective on that. Um, but I, I, that's not a, a firm answer or, or I can't, I'm not saying that with like knowledge of exactly what Notre Dame is going to do three months from now. But uh, I think uh Certainly, Notre Dame is going to keep its eyes open to that. I mean, they were they were they looked at it this offseason. It wasn't something they they ignored. I think people um, feel like because they didn't get someone that they just weren't interested in anyone. But there was no they couldn't find a match. Nothing worked out what they wanted, and Tommy Reese felt strong strong enough in the guys that they had that they didn't reach for a guy that maybe they had questions about whether or not he could he could play at Notre Dame. All right, next question is from at Drew Brennan 77. How much does this bye week help Tian Colsey, Tobias Merriweather, and Joe Wilkins Jr.? Can we expect them to be in the game plan for BYU and onward? Well, I think potentially it helps all three of them. Uh, Tobias will have a chance to really buckle down on the fundamentals, the things that have kept him to, what, four snaps this season? Because, I mean, he he is a guy that studies his playbook. He's athletic. He at six, five with track speed gives them something different than, than they're putting on the field right now. And so I, I would think, you know, not having to worry about a game plan, one of those two weeks and, and just really being able to buckle down on what's kept him off the field, I think is beneficial with Deion Colsey. You're talking about shaking the rust because um, he got his first offensive snaps. I think he, this against North Carolina and it was just a handful of them he had played special teams I think the week before and then Joe Wilkins I'm scratching my head I'm really not sure what his health is like he had played a handful of snaps in the first three games and then nothing in the North Carolina game so I'm wondering if he had a minor setback if he just needed rest 
but whatever he needed, he could get during, during the bye week. So I think that's important for him too, but we've just seen so little of him. Yeah. The, uh, that's something I don't have a great sense for is the physical, physical capabilities of Wilkins and Deion Colsey right now. Um, I, I would imagine only time can help them, but I don't know if the bye week is a, the, the the amount of time that that's needed to get them to a place where they can they need to buy month is that what you're saying consistently contribute I don't know um Tobias Merriweather needs plenty of practice reps certainly to prove that he can make an impact it's um to me it's, it's hard to imagine that all three of them become part of the game plan moving forward um if Wilkins is healthy I would probably put him ahead of those people which I don't know that people would be that excited about because he's the old guy that they feel like they know what he is and Colsey and, and Merriweather, these uh, young, intriguing guys. But um, but after that, I'd probably go with Merriweather. I, I'm not sure where Deion Colsey is at in his development and his health, those two things that w- could limit his opportunity. So Tobias Merriweather is certainly there, but um, he Tobias has to. Uh, the one guy that pretty much had a full run of training camp. The other two did not. Right. Um all right, next question is from James Murphy at Murphy324. How do you feel about Braden Lindsey getting 74 of 82 offensive reps? Is he contributing in some way off the ball? Well, I mean, I look at it, and until those other three guys that we just mentioned are able to get on the field, you only have four receivers, basically. Right. And, um, I mean, Braden hasn't been overly productive. But are you going to give those snaps to, you know, Matt Salerno? Are you going to play more 12 and 13 personnel? It surprised me a little bit that he had more snaps than Lorenzo Styles. You know, Jaden Thomas isn't giving you terribly great production in the passing game. I think he's a decent run blocker. And in fact, I think he has a really good run blocking grade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, given Lindsay's production, but again, What's the alternative at this point? He's fast. He plays on the outside, and they have to pay attention to him. He just hasn't got at a lot of production yet. Maybe that'll come as he and Drew Pine work together, you know, watching film together or whatever. I, I yeah. wouldn't give up on Brain Lindsay. Here's the thing I like about Brain Lindsay: mentally tough kid, self-aware, um, mature, and I just wouldn't give up on him at this point. I, I I realize a lot of people say he is who he is at this point, but you know, his sophomore year, he had some big moments for Notre Dame. And I think that player still inside of him. I I'd like to see if that can come out. Yeah. I think a lot of Braden Lindsay skeptics don't trust him, but I don't think that's the viewpoint of the coaching staff. Um, I don't love that. He's playing that much. I think, uh, his reps should be decreased, but like you said, I, I'm not. I don't want to see more Jaden Thomas or Matt Salerno than Braden Lindsay. If if you can get Joe Wilkins or Tobias Merriweather into the offense more, then 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 I'm comfortable with lowering yeah. Braden Lindsay's reps. But um, I do. There is something too. Like defenses know what he can do. Like his speed on the outside, and that has to be respected, even if Notre Dame hasn't utilized it. He's only one of 10 on targets, 10 plus yards downfield, including one of seven on 20 plus yard throws. So those, those aren't, those aren't good numbers uh, for the argument to keep him in the game, but those aren't all his fault either. Um, 
I, I did. He had a couple of nice short receptions and what I seem to recall as being like the two minute drill to end the first half. That's like, okay, those are just like nothing spectacular, but it's like, I can trust Braden Lindsay on this out route that he's going to, he's going to make a play on the ball. He's like, he's going to be where I expect him to be to get, to get the ball to him quickly and get out of bounds to keep moving the chain. So um, I think he's a decent blocker. I, I Jaden Thomas is probably a better run blocker than he is, but yeah. he can handle, he can handle jet sweeps. Um, and like I said, I, I prefer him over the on the field over the healthy guys that we've seen that aren't aren't Tobias Merriweather. Um, because uh, there's just you made not- a really good point there about him being a burner. Because if you're a defensive coordinator and you're thinking about okay, let's do some extra things here, let's bracket Michael Mayer, and and you're completely committing a safety away from Braden Lindsay and willing to give him one on one coverage. That's a dilemma for you. I mean, Jaden Thomas in one-on-one coverage isn't the scary thing that Braden Lindsey is in one-on-one coverage, even though, you know, Jaden Thomas had a nice blue-gold game and so forth. He's not a guy that usually, you're, you know, you're going to stretch the defense. He's going to, um, you know, throw the ball over everybody's head and he's going to catch it. But Braden Lindsey's a guy that could do that, so you have to respect that. Yeah, I mean, I, I would ex- I imagine defenses are going to make, okay, prove that Braden Lindsay, you can complete that pass to Braden Lindsay. Yeah. But um, they still have to be aware of it in, in some way. So I think it does, it does make an impact. It's, it's not, it's probably not making as big of an impact as Notre Dame would like it to. Um, but there's still time for that to, to change. Next question is from at Rick D. Irish. I see freshman wide receivers all over the country making plays early in the season. How can Tobias Merriweather not have a single target? I'm sure recruits see this and take notice. Can't be about trust. Jane Thomas has done nothing before this week. Well, I mean, it is about trust, or they'd have him out there. Um, that's that's the thing. And and Jaden Thomas in the passing game hasn't done much. I think he has three catches, and I think two of them were in the North Carolina game. Um, and but he is a very good run blocker. I don't know whether Tobias is. You know, we've had Tobias on the podcast. He's impressive. I mean, he's a mature kid. He's confident. Um, he works hard. Um, he's tough. Um, you know, probably not as physical. He's definitely not as physically developed as Jaden Thomas. I mean, if they were in a sumo wrestling match, it'd be over in about two seconds with Jaden Thomas winning it. But I can understand your curiosity about that. You see other top receivers. Why can't Notre Dame? And And that's, been kind of a theme for a long time but i i do think once they are able to trust tobias and maybe that's coming up maybe that's this week um i think you'll see tobias worked in there because again he has a skill set that nobody else on this team has in that kind of combination yeah i i wanted to see if i could bring some national perspective to this too give some context to what Rick was saying about seeing freshman receivers all over the country making plays. Um, There are currently, according to the NCAA's FBS stat leaders website, there are only six freshman wide receivers who are averaging three and a half catches per game so far this season. Um, Two of them happen to be Notre Dame opponents, uh, North Carolina's Kobe Paysauer and Cal's J. Michael Sturdivant. So there's not exactly a, wealth of freshman wide receivers who are being relied on on a consistent basis um, to make plays, um, at least 
at least according to my research. Now that I think that only includes players who have played in 75% of the game. So that means if you right. miss two C. games, there are more and Walker have done much. Right. So, and, and, uh, it's not like uh, USC's offense. I guess I don't. I don't know what CJ Williams' stats are, so I don't want to pretend. That, I knew going into, and I can look it up. But obviously, it was, that it was one catch, one catch for each of those guys, Amorian and CJ, going into the last weekend's game. I didn't look to see what they did last weekend. And those guys that play, those guys play for teams that have been blowing out their opponents too. So I'd right. imagine that maybe some of those could have happened in garbage time. But anyways, so I, I think that's a little bit exaggerated, you know, the impact of that freshmen are having across this country um, at the wide receiver position. But that doesn't mean that a freshman can't earn some targets, even if they're – you can have a meaningful role as a freshman wide receiver and not average three and a half catches per game. Um, and that the only reason I picked that number is because that was what was listed within the top however many they had listed. Um, so you'd like to see that happen for Tobias Merriweather, but I'm with you, like, to say that there it can't be about trust, there's there's no reason to say that. I for some reason this question is equating like the lack of production from Jaden Thomas means that they can't trust him. Um, I don't think. I mean, we th- there couldn't have been something more obvious where Tobias Merriweather was asked to go in motion. He didn't go in motion. You didn't see him again. That's why he's not trusted. You got to do what you you're supposed to do. Um, so I, I think that that's just where things are at that doesn't mean it can't change next week but that that is a reflection of where Notre Dame feels it's at and it's trust in Tobias Merriweather so far I I think this I I don't know if this happens like I was talking about we we were talking about these freshman wide receivers over the country I don't obviously Notre Dame was desperate for wide receiver help um, and Notre Dame hasn't had a long list of freshman wide receivers to to make significant impacts over the last decade but I just – I had a feeling that this was going to happen because there was a lot of praise being given to Tobias Merriweather in camp, I think just because of what he looks like and the potential that he has. But and I, his name is Tobias. But I, I, he was still making simple errors in camp that you're going to see from a freshman, and that was always going to limit his potential to make an impact right away. So I, while you were um, in your monologue there, I did look up <laughs> the stats. Uh, C.J. Williams – has played in three of four games. He has one catch for three yards. Amorian Walker has played in four games for Michigan. He has one catch for four yards. So they're one catch each ahead of Tobias. <laughs> well, I guess another, uh... another thing about like playing for freshmen and, and I have a uh, transfer story where I track all the 29 transfers that are still playing football elsewhere, you know, I, I led with Jordan Johnson because Jordan Johnson is at UCF, five-star receiver. Brian Kelly was criticized for not playing him as a freshman. Played in two games, I think 13 snaps, no catches. He's now a junior academically with no injury history. And you know how many career catches he has? Zero. The same as when he is not even in the two deeps for UCF. Um, there's a lot of misevaluations and missteps and maybe even um, not really good development. But when I look over the receivers that have transferred, well, well, from 2017 to 2020, Notre Dame recruited 11 receivers out of high school. Nine either switched positions, transferred, or both. So, so that's – some of it was the material – 
And I'm not saying Tobias is in that category. I think Tobias is better than a lot of those receivers, but you're looking at Kendall Abdur Rahman, who's in his second year at Western Kentucky and has one career catch for minus five yards. And, you know, even somebody like um, Keys, Lawrence Keys at Tulane is not a starter there. You know, they, they whiffed on a lot of these kids and they're not, you know, even Shafar Armstrong, he's finally playing for somebody, but it's Western Illinois, a, a winless FCS team. He's got 10 catches. I mean, as a sixth year player, that's not all that impressive, but it's it's right. probably the best of the wide receiver bunch that, that's transferred elsewhere. So a lot of it is going to be recruiting quality wide receivers. I think Chancey Stuckey is a really good, um, in terms of, teaching technique and so forth i think we just haven't seen the fruits of that labor yet i think eventually we will yeah and i it, it doesn't it doesn't make it easier for a freshman wide receiver to have played with two to have potentially played with two different starting quarterbacks in a span of four games too <laughs> that that doesn't that doesn't make things easier either because you got to establish that trust with each individual quarterback all right next question from cheryl russo at cheryl r bunch of numbers will Mitchell Evans play against BYU and how are BYU's cornerbacks and safeties? When you look at their defensive grades from pro football focus, um, they're, I think of their seven of their nine top rated defensive players, seven are cornerbacks or safeties. And that includes some of their reserves. So in terms of how they're playing this year, they're playing well. I think we're, BYU gets burned is maybe with their front seven a little bit. They're not a good run defense. Uh, BYU is much better against the pass than they are against the run. As far as Mitchell Evans, the last time we talked to Marcus and he was asked about it, the most optimistic timeline was that he was going to be ready for BYU. I think you're going to see him at some point in October, but I don't think they're going to rush him back because I think they like the two freshmen a lot. And I think Kane Barong's getting healthier too. So when Mitchell is ready to play and contribute, he certainly will. But Eli Reardon has blocked well. Holden Stays started that game. He didn't play much, but he started the North Carolina game. Um, and those guys have been apparently getting it done in practice. They were impressive when we saw them in August. So, um, but to answer your question, the most optimistic timeline was BYU. And we'll certainly ask about that on Monday when we have a chance to talk to Marcus Freeman. Yeah, without knowing for sure, I would guess that he won't play. Um, given as we start to learn Marcus Freeman's track record and right. what he's telling us for injuries, there, there, you, the the return time is usually not on the, the on the shorter end of what he what he's offering. So I think even when he said that he could potentially play at BYU, or he said or sometime after that, so he did give himself an out there, but. Um, I haven't heard much about what, what his progress in practice has been. So he might not necessarily even be, I don't know how much he is even practicing this week. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine he would make a big impact in the BYU game, but we'll see. We, we certainly have been wrong on those things before. Um, yeah. I, I don't I don't know that I have much more to add in terms of the BYU secondary. They are better against the, the pass than the run. Um, one thing I did find when I was going through some of the grades and stuff uh, was that, one of their starting cornerbacks, D'Angelo Mandel, has struggled a bit this season. And, and 
his backup, Jacob Robinson, was one of the guys that has one of the better grades. So I, I, I haven't watched a ton of BYU film currently. Um, playing tonight. So I, I don't know if if Robinson is starting to play more than Mandel, but um, that is something maybe to, to monitor moving forward. All right, next question is from BGI user 435 on the Insider Lounge. With the newfound running game, what are the one or two most effective running formation slash plays to attack BYU? Okay, well, Tyler just did a big analysis piece on this, so I'm going to let him go first because I think I'm going to oversimplify here. And thank you for filling there because my voice was trying to leave my body. You were getting a little bit left. <laughs> That's what it sounded like. But it was just um, this cold that I'm getting through. Um, I like getting back to the previous question. I haven't watched a ton of BYU film. I, the most of the one I've seen was the Baylor game. Um, and Baylor rushed for 152 yards. So not a ton of ground game success. Um, but the success that Baylor did have was typically between the tackles. So I don't know if that's something that Notre Dame can exploit. Um, but that would be something to um, potentially look for. I think Notre Dame did a number of different things in the running game that could be replicated, not just against BYU, but throughout the season. I, I really like some of the stuff that Notre Dame was able to do from its 21 personnel with two running backs in the game um, and, and pulling Jared Patterson. Jared Patterson was pretty good as a puller. So those would be some things that maybe Notre Dame can do against BYU to have some success running the football. I, I actually wrote down the two running backs too. Um, I, again, just from watching, looking at player grades and and tendencies and so forth, BYU's edge players have played much better than what's right up the gut for them. So I would think Notre Dame would be able to power at them, run right at them a little bit. And I I also would like some misdirection, maybe not so much against BYU. And I mentioned this earlier, but just maybe just a few extra plays to keep the defensives honest. And I also love what's going on on the left side of the line. I, I like what's going on with Joe Alt and Jarrett Patterson. So I would uh, use those guys. Definitely yeah. don't run the quarterback sneak. <laughs> yeah, no worries. 198 pound guy. Yeah, I, I agree with that one. All right, next one at Henry Bede. Which younger players will we see more of following the bye week? Which are you particular particularly interested to see? I think the ones that I think that we'll see more of are the ones that I'm interested in seeing. Uh, I put at wide receiver Tobias and Colsey. Rarden stays at tight end. I'd like to see Steve Angeli worked into some games if the score dictates that on defense. I'd like to see definitely Prince Collie, um, and I think we will, and and maybe a little bit of Junior Thule Halamaka. Um, I'd like to see more Xavier Watts in maybe non-high-levered situations just to get his coverage skills better. I need to ask Marcus on Monday if he's still doing the two-way thing because I think at this point they need him so much at safety. He needs to be focusing on that full-time, as unselfish as he is. And I think we'll see more of Morrison and Mickey at cornerback. Um, I think they have not played great, but they've had their moments. And you could certainly see, well, this could turn into something. Whereas I think Clarence Lewis is as good as he's going to get. Um, and Cam Hart just hadn't looked 
like himself. So, so I'd invest in those two freshman corners. Those are my guys. Well, you, you, uh, listed so few players. I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I would agree with most of those, but the guys that I wrote down were, were Merriweather, the tight ends, Raritan stays, and then Prince Collie at linebacker. I thought Prince did some decent things when he, when he got some action there. So taking, taking some of the load off of the Notre Dame's linebacker rotation could be helpful. Um, so those would be the guys that I am most interested to see. And I also think that there's a decent possibility that we would see that. I think um, Raritan being at the top of the list in terms of likelihood of seeing more, although I don't know if we'll see him more than what I think he reached like 30 snaps against North Carolina. So he, he is playing a lot now, um, but uh, I think we'll, we'll see plenty of him moving forward. And our last question is from Dr. Andy Irish of the Insider Lounge. How do we improve cornerback and safety performance? I have Tommy yell at him and tell them that they need to do their job. Um, <laughs> I would say health is going to be one thing. You know, missing Ramon Henderson and uh, then having D.J. Brown miss a big chunk of that North Carolina game put Notre Dame in a bad place because then you have Bracey flipping over to safety and you weaken yourself at two positions then. Yeah. Uh, so, so getting healthy and that includes Cam Hart. I mean, he has not been the guy that I expected. I thought he would be one of Notre Dame's top 10 players. He hasn't been close to that. And then uh, again, I would keep investing in those two freshmen. I think the more they play, the better they're going to get. Um, you know, we know Mickey doesn't have a fragile ego and uh, I don't think Benjamin Morrison does either. Although Mickey will tell you whether he does. Um, but I like those two guys. I, I think that there's a lot of potential there and toward the end of the season, I think they're going to be happy that they invested this much in their playing time. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think, uh, it's, it would be wise to not overreact to the play in the second half against North Carolina um, because, one, North Carolina's offense is good. We have to remember that. Um, and they're good at exposing defenses down the field. Um, and some of that was a mix of coverage breakdowns and simply getting beat. Uh, as long as Notre Dame isn't in a position where Tariq Bracey has to play safety and they're without Ramon Henderson and D.J. Brown, I'm not as concerned about that. I do agree – wholeheartedly that Cam Hart needs to play better. I don't think that he's he's uh, met the expectations that we have for him. Or I don't I, – I'd be curious to think, hear what he had to say if he's played to the level that he expects for himself. Excuse me. Um, so I think that's a big thing. And, and Jane Mickey has he's, – he seems to have, like, the worst luck. I, I don't – he's a better player than some of the plays that have been made against him, um, and uh, that included one of the – the longer passes in the first half um, against North Carolina. So um, making sure that he's not in vulnerable positions, I think would be a help to the defense as well. At, at least he doesn't yell at either the defensive coordinator or his teammates. The one kid on North Carolina that got beat on one-on-one -on -one coverage was complaining about no safety help. <laughs> I'm not sure that I've ever seen that in a game where the guy – Calls out his teammates. That was amusing. 
All right, that's it for today's episode of the Inside Indie Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with your mail carrier. We'll be back on the podcast Tuesday to look ahead at the BYU game. Until then, stick with InsideIndieSports.com for all your pregame and postgame coverage needs. <laughs>